and uh, we're here in our study, and uh, I know last week we did, we used the TVs last week so that we didn't miss, while I was gone, a study. Uh, usually when I'm gone, Keith is here to fill in, but they're in Iowa, so uh, they're not able to do that, and looking around the room, several folks aren't here because it is the last of the summer hurrah until the winter rolls in. We, <laughs> our winter, you know, it's all relative. You know, Bob and them are from Chicago visiting, and that's not winter. You know, when it's 60 degrees, that's not winter. It is for us. So, but anyway, uh, for, I, and, and last time in 1 Corinthians 1, we're down in verse 18, where Paul talks about, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Actually, verse 17 for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And that issue there, where as Paul begins to now deal with the core issue here at Corinth, which is going to be the Corinthians, the reason for the, their carnality and their mess is because they have left the wisdom of God and have gone after the wisdom of man, the wisdom of this world. And we, they, they have a divide amongst them that's popped up there in verse 12. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. And again, we spend a ton of time looking at that. That is, all the commentaries say that's a personality difference. And so they had, you know, a likability issues and so forth. And that's just not the case. The Lord Jesus Christ never saw the folks at Corinth. They never saw Peter. Peter never went there. There's no way that they could say, well, we like Peter better than Paul. They didn't have that interaction at all. So rather than it being a likability issue or a personality, it's a doctrinal issue. Those are four different doctrinal viewpoints. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the earthly ministry, and his viewpoint, and what he was teaching. Then you have Cephas, that's Peter, that's Acts 2, and, and, and Acts 1 to 7, really, the totality there, and Peter's continuation of the earthly ministry, but then focusing in on that little flock and getting them ready for the 70th week of Daniel, and then for the establishment of the kingdom. But then you have Apollos, and we went back in Acts 18, where Apollos shows up, and when in the moment in time when Apollos shows up, all he knows is John's baptism. He doesn't even know that Christ has come, Messiah come. He doesn't know that he died and was buried and rose again the third day. He doesn't know anything. And actually in Acts 19, the next passage, there's a group of people who don't even know the Holy Ghost has fallen out. All they know is John's baptism. So now Aquila and Priscilla bring Apollos up to date, and that changes for Apollos. But rather, but what they're doing, but who was Apollos? He was eloquent in speech and scripture. He was smooth. He was a smooth, op all of his English was good, gooder English, you know. It was all right, you know. All his Greek was right. And so you tend to follow that, but yet Paul, then obviously the revelation of, the, of, the, uh, of Romans 16, 25, now he's power to establish you according to my gospel and according to the revelation of the mystery, 
the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the Revelation. I see the memory verses, you know, boom, right? What's that? The canyon, yeah. Yeah, well, I was looking at the pictures this morning going, oh, okay. Uh, now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but now made manifest and so forth. So, Paul, so those different doctrinal setups. So what did Paul do? The first, he, verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? So instantly Paul identifies the mechanism that's being used to cause the division. When he says, is Christ divided? If you're in one of these four camps, when he says, is Christ divided? He's not talking about we're all preaching the same thing. By the way, that's what mainline Christianity thinks. He's rather, he's saying, listen, Christ would not allow all four different doctrinal uh, beliefs or systems happening at the same time. God is a God of order. He's not the author of confusion. He's, he, he has order to it and structure. So then Paul deals with the issue of baptism. And literally, verse 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. When you come to, when the Lord Jesus Christ, and we looked at this, and this is just review. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he preaches in his earthly ministry, is baptism optional or required? It's required. Peter in Acts 2, is that an op, 2.38, is that an option or is that a requirement? It's a requirement. Actually, in Acts 10, when Peter deals with Cornelius, Peter, the verse says, commanded that they be baptized. Paul says, I wasn't sent to baptize. Baptism is of no import today, water baptism, okay? But what's important? The preaching of the gospel. So he begins now, verse 17, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So if you're going to preach water baptism as a requirement, so what do they say? It's an outward expression of an in, inward testimony, an inward transfer. That is wisdom of words, see? There is no verse in Scripture, and I've looked several times to be able to make a dogmatic statement. There is no verse in Scripture that says that the meaning, the purpose of water baptism is for an outward expression of an inward faith. It doesn't, it, that verse does not ex exist. Now, there are verses that say, by their fruits you'll know them and so forth, but none of that is connected to water baptism. So what does Christianity, religion do? They, they reach back in there and they grab, okay? Then Paul says, verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So then we looked at the preaching of the cross. Christ preaches the cross, and his audience, remember what they did? They didn't understand him. Peter, yeah, Peter said, no, ain't going to happen. Let's go to battle. So there's an ignorance about preaching of the cross. They didn't. It's Luke 24, after the Calvary, after the resurrection, he goes in and opens their understanding up. Actually, in John, they're on their way to the tomb, and they don't understand that he's not going to be there because they just don't have, I mean, if, 
I love the angels. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? What are you doing here? Don't you know that he told you three times, by the way, and then the prophetic scriptures that guess what? He's going to rise the third day, see? So there's a different perspective of preaching the cross. Peter, Cephas, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5. Stephen in Acts 7 preaches a cross in what manner? It's a written indictment against the nation of Israel for murdering the Messiah. See, Now, no, no Jew can ever say, well, I didn't, we didn't do that. It's what? It's written. And the Holy Spirit wrote it, so the Holy Spirit's given him a written indictment here. How does Apollos preach to Christ? He didn't. He didn't even know he existed again in time. Now, later, Apollos does. Apollos has got a great heart. He's a what? He's a tremendous help to Paul in the ministry as he does what? Learns and grows and moves forward. How does Paul preach Christ? That's what was last week, okay? This morning, we're going to kind of do a little, a, little, a little rabbit trail for you, for me, if you will. And that is, in Christianity, the church at large assumes, and you know what happens when you assume something, that every body, the Lord, Peter, Apollos, Paul, are all preaching the same thing about the cross. And I think we've demonstrated that that just isn't the case. The Lord will say, have you not read the scriptures? What scriptures is he talking about? Well, in Luke 24, he says, the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, they all talked about me. The Lord takes you back to the Old Testament. What does religion do, Christianity? They bring Paul and bring back into the passages. Can't do that, see? That's being dishonest with the Scripture. And again, we saw that. And it's with Paul and Paul alone, the unique language of verse 18, for the preaching of the cross. Just look over with me at Galatians 6, just real quick. Get Galatians 6 and Acts chapter number 2. So when you think about this issue here, and, and the caveat that we're going to run is the issue of John 3.16, okay? And I just want to look at John 3.16 to kind of get my feet back on after, you know, 93,000 steps and all that good stuff up and down and around and everything. But, but for you as well, because John 3.16 goes to church a lot. It goes to the ball game a lot, you know. It goes everywhere. Why? Because it's the... Uh, Luther, I think it was Luther, Martin Luther, he said that John 3.16 is the scripture, is the Bible in miniature. And you know what? That isn't true. That's not an accurate statement. Galatians 6. Look at Galatians 6. Look at verse 14. Well, verse 12. Yeah, 12. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh... That's what religion does. Religion satisfies the lust of your flesh. They constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. So where is religion glory? Where is mainline Christianity glory? In your flesh. They, they tell you, don't go to the movies, don't do this, don't, don't dress this way, dress, you know, all this stuff. And then they don't do it, you know. 
I, I, growing up in Chicago, I went to a private, uh, a, a private school uh, at the time, uh, Baptist school, and none of my buddies could go to the movies. I go to the movies. You know, my mom and dad were like, just be home by midnight. Their mom and dad should be home by 10. Law and grace, a little different, okay? Also, I'm just a good guy, a good kid. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed, okay? But the thing of it is, is I went to the movies and I, to see a, whatever, a shoot 'em up I'm sure. And guess who was sitting down about third row from the front? <laughs> One of the teachers. Like, yeah, okay. So I went down and said, hello. And they're like, oh, what are you? Well, I'm like, well, what are you doing here? Well, we're checking to see what students are here. Yeah, uh-huh, exactly. A fair show in the flat. Now look at verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, Paul talking, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Now, doctrine, where is Paul glorying? In the cross of Christ, in the ugliness, the violence, the sheer, the, the sheer enormity of the moment, because what is, what is being revealed to Paul? The full scope of it, the full measure of it, the rich, the deep, the full achievements of it. Now look at Acts 2, just to draw a comparison. Acts 2, you start in verse 22, you've got Peter, ye men of Israel, hear these words. By the way, men of Israel, there's, there may be Gentiles in the audience, I kind of doubt it, but there might be, but Peter's not talking to them. Acts chapter 10, verse 45 indicates that to be the case. Verse 23, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 22. A man, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. All right, so all the prophetic scriptures have been talked. Genesis 3 onward, have all been fulfilled. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now think about that. How did they kill him? By wicked hands. There's no glory here by Peter. If you draw your eye across the page, and if you look at verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, talking about David here, according to flesh, he would raise up Christ to do what? To provide justification unto eternal life for all of humanity. No. To do what? Why was Christ raised in the prophetic program? To sit on a throne. See that? That's a different mindset, different perspective. So when we come into 1 Corinthians 1 here, and, and again, with Paul, that term, the preaching of the cross, is Pauline. It's unique to Paul. It's special to Paul. And while Christ and the earthly ministry and the 12 and the, the little flock and all gospels, to, uh, Matthew to Acts is all in key. Again, you have to remember Romans 15, 3. Romans 15, 4. It's all for our learning. It's, uh, the things written aforetime are written for our learning, not our obedience. And we get in Romans to Philemon for obedience. But we're to know this book, Genesis to Revelation. And as we've looked at all of that, again, with Paul, we learn about the full achievement, the full accomplishment of the cross work of Christ. 
So when most of Christianity says, yeah, but we've got a verse. Now come to John 3.16. And our verse is John 3.16. By the way, on your way to John 3.16, stop at Romans 5. Get Roman, John 3.16, get Romans 5. And what I want to do, and, and again, I, have, I do not have an issue with John 3.16. <laughs> I, I just, I don't want, it's God's word. All right? What I want you to do is understand what John 3.16 is talking about, and it's all about. Because if you use John 3.16 as your gospel presentation, you're sending people to hell. That's what, that, because there is no blood in here, there's no cross in here, and they're believing something very different than what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15.3 and 4, that we're to believe what? Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. See, it's completely different. You got John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. A better verse to use is Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us, see. A better verse for you and I isn't John 3, than John 3, 16 is what? Romans 5, 8, see, okay? So I would encourage you to use Romans 5, 8, not John 3, 16. But let's go to John 3, 16 because, again, the assumption made by all of Christianity, and this is going to get into in our 1 Corinthians 1, the issue of the wisdom of words, okay, connected to the preaching of the cross, the assumption in John 3.16 is that John 3.16 is talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And it is not. All right? Just, okay, spoiler alert. It's not. So let's go have coffee and bagels and all that good, right? You good with that? Yeah, let's shut him up quick. Let's go, you know. But I'm not going to let you off that easy. When we look at John 3.16... It's a great verse. I'm not against it, okay? You need to learn about it, where it sits, the context that it sits in, the context of the passage, the context of the book, okay? It's one of the most famous verses. I'm impressed that it's still allowed in the arena at times of thought, but it shows up, you know? And again, most say that it's referring to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and it, it isn't at all. And what's going to bring the clarity of it is understanding right division. The clarity comes in by understanding dispensational Bible study. Because when we look at John 3.16, with, again, even 1 Corinthians 1.17 and 18, we begin to find out that John 3.16 has nothing to do with the preaching of the cross. The church reads it back in. Now, when you talk about John 3.16, what do you get? You get a lot of emotion, don't you? Oh, my favorite verse. Well, if that's your favorite verse, we need to talk because there's a bunch of other verses that ought to be your favorite verse. Okay? So, as we are very familiar with John 3.16, again, it's beloved. There's a lot of emotion around it. You need to look careful. We need to look carefully at the verse. It's a powerful verse. And again, most of Christians, this is like the fifth time, because I'm 
you've got to get this into your thinking. Most of Christianity assumes that all of the guys are t- all of Christ. Again, Satan is using God's men to deceive God's people. And when we looked at that, see, he's not using over here. He's using he's using Christ and Peter and Apollos and Paul. And what's he doing? He's Romans 16, 17, fair speeches, good words, and fair speeches. Deceive the hearts and the minds of the simple. They read Pauline doctrine back into it. Okay? I was listening to a very famous woman preacher. And again, I have nothing against her. She did a great job in Romans 8 until she got to the gospel at the end. And then she ginned up the works gospel, and it messed it all up. It actually destroyed three-quarters of what she was saying was ours to freely enjoy <laughs> and richly give us. And, so, and, and it's like, wait a minute. you just, and, But what, there's an assumption here. So when you look at, look at John 3.16, we have to be very careful with it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice that verse. What do we have? For God so loved, so we have the love principle, don't we? We have a wonderful principle of God's love for humanity. What did he do? He gave his only begotten son. There's the grace principle, God giving freely. Nobody demanding it. He just does it, right? And then he says that whosoever believeth. So now we have the faith principle. See, so John 3.16 has got to be the verse because look at the principles in the verse. We've got the, the, we've, we've got the love principle, the grace principle, the faith principle, and we've got it. So therefore, man, it's got to be saying the same thing that Paul says, right? I've heard that before. By the way, that's not what I'm saying. That's what you hear said, see. And are those principles there? Very much so. But just contextually, not you and I today in the age of grace. We can, and again, we should appreciate, we should value all those principles. They're all true. They're all accurate. But the difference really is they're taking Pauline doctrine and reading it back into, in the moment here, where we've already seen that when Christ preaches the cross, it's to a group of people that go, what in the world is he talking about? Ignorance abounds, see. So let's think about this. So the question, again, you got to understand what's going on in the context of the passage. You got to understand what's going on in the context of John, the Gospels. You got to have, you got to, you start small and you back it out and you begin to really see when the, when the Lord says, ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, what scriptures is he talking about? Old Testament. Come back to Luke 24. Uh, yesterday in our men's meeting, we uh, men's fellowship, we were studying the Trinity, the Godhead, and then we ended up talking about creation for an hour and a half. <laughs> we didn't get into the Godhead and because of the Grand Canyon and everything. And, and honestly, we, some of that conver- we were discussing, I didn't say it at the time, the guys know this, when you get into some of that, you don't have to be in 100% agreement because we have different perspectives. Uh, Luther's, uh, Martin Luther's uh, uh, co-worker 
He said, in the fundamentals, absolutely unity. In the other stuff, we can have wiggle room. That's Rick's uh, up, pa paraphrase update of that quote, okay? Because, and that's what it is, all right? Look at Luke 24. Look at Luke 24. Look at verse 44. Because this is something you have to remember when you drift back into these passages. And he said unto them, and he's talking to, the, the, well, the ten. They're sitting there in the upper room. These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in Paul's epistles, in the Hebrew No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says where? The law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. So when the Lord says, as it is written, this is being fulfilled, we looked at this when we talked about Christ, back up in chapter 1, verse 12, where did he drag them? He drug them backwards into the Old Testament. See, He never took them forward to Paul to say, okay, guys, I'm going to go die, and this is what's going to happen, and it's going to be a wonderful time because, man, it's justification unto eternal life for all of humanity. He never says that at all. See? Now, verse 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scripture. Then, when? After resurrection? After, you know, the... See that? And then, then you go to Acts 1, and you got the 40 days and so forth. So when you come into John 3 here, to understand John 3.16 is to understand the Old Testament and the Old Testament and the prophets. So the, the question that usually comes up is, is John 3.16 the gospel for folks today in the age of grace, the dispensation of grace? The answer is no. Okay. So then what is John 3.16 dealing with and addressing? Well, look at John 3.16, but look at back up at verse 14. And let's get a little context here. And I'm going to try to do about three hours in about 35 minutes, so hang on, okay? All right? And if we don't get it, then we'll, we'll, we'll skip to the end and give you the concluding issues, and, and then we'll, we're moving on next week, okay? I promise. Well, I shouldn't promise, should I? I'm a politician that way, I guess, huh? I shouldn't do that. Okay. Look at verse 14. You find John 3, 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Oh, see, look, there's Calvary. Are you sure? That's what the church says at large out there. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but ha have everlasting life. You see, what's the context of 3.16? It starts at 3.14, and it's going to run down beyond it. Notice in 3.14 when he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That, folks, is a rebuke to apostate nation Israel. That is not a, it's a, it's a rebuke. And, and by the way, the Lord doesn't talk in first person here. He's talking in third person about himself. And the reason he does that is because it's Israel's responsibility to identify the Messiah. And guess what they're doing? They're failing. And they're missing him. Remember John 1? 
We did this in the gospel study and us in John 1, 11 and 12. The theme of John, here's what John is all about. He came into his own and his own what? Received him not, but as many as received him. See, there, are, there is that little flock, that believing remnant. So when he says, as Moses, he makes an allurement back to numbers to a moment in time when Israel was under, under some duress because of, well, let me ask you, belief or unbelief? Unbelief, see? So he, he makes an allurement back to numbers and says, you remember back there on with Moses and that serpent and he put that, uh, and that's all done in unbelief. What are they going to do to me? Same thing. You see, John 3.14, the context starts with the rebuke and it's a rebuke because Israel is to be held responsible in their, for their failure to identify who the Messiah is. Verse 15, 3.15, that whosoever believeth where? In him. Notice it doesn't say in me. See? It says in him. In him who? Messiah. Messiah. Now, you could say Christ, but because Christ is anointed, i.e. Messiah, it all means the same word. But in here, he's not talking about Christ. Christ is talking about himself, but he doesn't say, whoever believeth in me, he says, in who? In him. Him who? Him, Messiah. You got, for God so loved the world. Now, let me ask you something. Somebody forgot to tell Paul that God's attitude toward the world was one of love. Because, go hold on here and look at Ephesians 2. See, I just quieted the room down, didn't I? Look at Ephesians 2. You see, folks, when you understand your Bible rightly divided, dispensationally, you begin to catch little things like this. Now, mainline Christianity doesn't because they, they, they reject Paul, his authority. They're right when they're, they're a Corinthian church. Or, and then they become a Galatian church, okay? But look at Ephesians 2. Look at verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past. Where's John 3 sit? Time past, okay? Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time, what time? John 3, 16 time. Time past. Ye who, Gentiles, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God, where? Yeah, but wait a minute, God so loved the world. Somebody forgot to tell Paul that. Because what does Paul say that God's attitude toward the world is in time past? You're no hope, you got no Christ, you got, you, you, you're aliens, you're without Christ, you're, you're aliens, you're strangers, you have no hope, you're without God. We've got a contradiction, don't we? Because John 3.16 said what? God loved the world. But Ephesians 2.12 says, no, he doesn't. Does he, though? He does. So you've got to put in, okay, what are we dealing with then in John 3.16? You see, what Paul says, God's attitude toward the world in time past, is that there's not much hope. There's actually no hope. But wait a minute, in John 3.16, where are you and I, the Gentiles, even at in that verse? We're not. See, 
there's something else deeper happening here. And that, again, that's where right division, dispensational Bible study comes in and just clarifies. We were sitting at a stream uh, filtering water, and it was a muddy stream. And it produced, the filter produced clear, pure water to drink in the canyon. Right division does that. It takes the muddy, and it just clears it right up. And that's what happens here. Go back to John 3, verse 6 uh, here. You see, what is my hope here in John 3.16? You don't have any hope, according to Paul in Ephesians 2. So then what's hap- what's, what is then going on here? Again, <laughs> go back up there to verse 14. What does the church at large say? What did you say at one time? What does your friends and family say? Well, here's the cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, will Jesus Christ be lifted up? Was Jesus Christ lifted up? Yes. Okay. But was he lifted up by the nation? In, was he put on Calvary in belief or in unbelief? Well, Acts 2, Peter just nailed them by wicked hands. They're in unbelief. But unbelief in what? Who he is who what who what was his claim i am messiah john 20 he says i am all this stuff happened in here so you would know that he is the son of god and boy they hated him when he made that reference to hey i'm the son of god the scriptures what again what do they say Here's the cross, so here's the death, burial, and resurrection. He's lifted up, and yet really we need to kind of grasp why he goes back to numbers. Why does he go backwards? By the way, he didn't go forward to Romans 3. He went where? Back to Moses. Well, why? Well, Luke 24, Moses is talking about him. Come over to chapter 8 of John, John 8. Do you guys follow what's happening? Okay. Again, I'm, uh, a lot of information here, and I'm trying to whittle it down as we go in my mind. Chapter 8. So the Lord takes back to Numbers, and really what he's doing when he goes back to Numbers, we'll go back there in just a minute, maybe. And he, and he likens to what is happening to him to a historical thing, an event that happened to Israel. But that issue that happens in Numbers is a response to Moses and some things that Moses had said to him and discussed with him. And you have to think about that. Again, Jesus Christ never says, when you lift me up, you'll come to understand that I died for the sins of the whole world. I died for all of humanity. When you raise me up on Calvary, then you're going to have this full grasp of everything that's coming. He never says that. He says it to Paul. He says, here's the full, the rich, the deep, the complete meaning of it, the hidden wisdom. Look at John 8. Look at verse 28. John 8, 28. Think about this being lifted up. John 8, 28. Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man. No, it doesn't say when you've lifted me up. Then shall ye know that I am he. 
and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak. Being lifted up isn't a good thing here. See, they should have understood that he was Messiah without having to lift him up. But what did the Lord say in verse 28? When ye have lifted up the who? There's that one of those messianic titles of his. When you've lifted me up, you'll know that who am I? I'm the Son of Man. I'm Messiah. You see, lifting up has nothing to do with the gospel of the grace of God going out and justification unto eternal life to the whole world. Being lifted up has to do with him being lifted up by Israel who are in, who, who are in unbelief. They're rejecting him as Messiah. It's their responsibility to identify him as the Messiah. So being lifted up is not a good thing here at all. Come over to chapter 12, John chapter 12. So in the context of John 3, 16, we got a lifting up issue here. But then when you back up into the book of John, John chapter 12, John 8, it's not a good thing. Now John 12, look at verse 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, isn't that a question? Not asked by the Lord, but asked by who? The people, Israel. They should have never asked that question. They said, you know what? We know you're talking about you because you're him, (laughs) and we know that. Now, the believing remnants say that, but that apostate Israel, when when you, you, what the Lord's saying to them here is, when you have me on the cross, you know what you're going to realize? That you just by wicked hands crucified your Messiah. You've rejected and killed the Messiah. Now, come back to Numbers 21. We'll go there. Numbers 21. So, back there in John 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up, Jesus uses the response to say, you know what the real issue, guys, is? Who am I? That's the real issue. Who am I? I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Son of God. I'm Messiah. Your job is to identify me as such. John the Baptist did in the baptism issue there in John 1. But the nation needs to identify that. Numbers 21, just real quick. Numbers 21, verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. So if they're speaking against, are they in belief or unbelief? Unbelief. So what did the Lord do? Verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have... Isn't that interesting? We've sinned. Now, notice what their sin is. We have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Isn't that interesting? 
doesn't say anything about going out and smoking and drinking and corralling around or any, any of that. How was their sin? Now, they spoke against. Notice there's not a list like Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are these. <laughs> They're like, oh, my goodness. You know, one of, you know, you get over in Colossians and lying in there, speak the truth with every man, don't be a liar. You know, they didn't say that. What did they say? Pray unto the Lord that he would he that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. What did they acknowledge? First, they they start in unbelief. Then trouble came, and then what did they say? We have sinned, and let's get right. So the raising up of the serpent, down in verse eight, nine, and ten there has to do with a response to unbelief within the nation. So when you come back to John 3, the Lord says, I'm going to be lifted up, just like historically the nation did back there with Moses, but when you lift me up, just like when Moses had to lift up that, that pole with, the, with, the, with uh, the serpent on it, John 3, then that's not a good thing, guys. Because you're going to crucify me as a, as a criminal, and yet I'm who am I? And that's really going to help here now in John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So when gave. Did God give his only begotten son? Yes, it's, it's, it's a, there's a prophetic flavor here. There's a prophetic tone to this. Come back to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9. This Isaiah 9 verse 6 and 7 goes to Christmas every Christmas. Okay? Isaiah 9 verse 6. And, and, the, it, and it's an interesting thing here to see these verses. Again, they're used at Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. All right? So the question is, is why does God give his only begotten son? Well, come on, Rick, it's to save sinners. No, it's not what the verses say. Keep reading verse 6. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. By the way, I hope your Bibles have commas after each of these. He's, I know the new Bibles pulled this comma out and make him the Wonderful Counselor. Don't let them do that. He's Wonderful comma, counselor, comma, the mighty God, comma, the everlasting father, comma, the prince of peace, period. Those the five mandates of, of the Davidic covenant he's re, he, and the five books of Psalms, and he's fulfilling every one of them. He's wonderful in, in that he's the redeemer. He's the counselor in that he's delivering Israel. He's the mighty God in that you don't just deliver from the the enemies, you avenge them, you wipe them out. He's the everlasting father in that he's the blesser. And then he's the prince of peace and that he's the king. And that's Psalms book 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. So don't let them screw around with the doctrine. But why was the Son of God, why did God give his Son? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Why? Verse 6, to do what? So that the government would do what, be his. The government uh, shall be upon his shoulder. 
and his name shall be, and then that fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Did, did God give his only son? Yes, he did. And boy, praise the Lord that he did. Wonderful. Praise the Godhead that he did. But why does he give it here? You see, pr prophecy is very limited. It isn't a big view. It's a limited view of Messiah. It's a what is he doing? He, he's going to establish the government, that eternal righteous rule of the Messiah. And he's going to work all that out in the Davidic covenant through being wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. He's going to work that out in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. By the way, Abrahamic covenant shows up, verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You know what the Abrahamic covenant says, Genesis chapter 12, Israel, Abraham, your seed, your guys, and it's Israel. You're going to be the channel of blessings for all of the families of the earth. There's the world being blessed through what? The Messiah in his place, Israel in her place, and then the blessings flowing down. And Israel becomes that conduit, that, that, that channel, see. So when you come back to, to John 3.16, why did God give his son? Not to save the world from their sins, but rather to come and to reign as king here on the planet earth in fulfillment of the promise that he gave not only to Abraham, but he gave to David. So what it's critical to see here is when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, by the way, there's a comma after that son, he gave it to accomplish some promises that he made Way back in the beginning, see, God so loved the world. You're in Isaiah still, Come, I hope. Come on over to chapter 49. Chapter 49. Not only does the prophets talk about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and what he's doing, but it also has a worldview in mind. Isaiah 49 and again, we're just jumping in. And man, if we had hours just to sit and to go through this, it would be, but we don't. Verse, uh, well, verse 5. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. And he, shall, and he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. When does that happen? Second coming. Okay? It's one of the events. When the second coming isn't just one event, there's, there's multiple events happening in what is the second coming. I will also give thee for a what? a light to the who? The Gentiles. That thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Now, again, you've got to be careful with that word salvation. It doesn't always mean justification unto eternal life. Salvation has three tenses, past, present, and future. This is a future tense. What, are they gonna, what is he going to establish with the restored Israel? He's going to establish that millennial kingdom. 
And what's going to happen? They're, then they're going to turn Matthew 28, go out into the world and bring honor and bring the light to the Gentiles. Verse 7, thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. Isn't that interesting? To him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship because of the Lord that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. What? Look at the mess that the nation is in. Because what did they just do to their Messiah, to their king, to their restorer, their redeemer? They just, they deny him. They abhor him. They despise him. They go hang him on Calvary, Golgotha. See, that's where we are on Wednesday night, Mark 15. Come over to chapter 60. Chapter 60. Oh, we're not going to get done. Doggone it. Chapter, well, we're going to get done. Chapter 60. Chapter 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. And then they're going to come out, and the rest of this, the first six, seven verses here, they're going to bring blessings. Come back to John 3. You see, folks, because th this is the part that I want to get to. We got, well, we'll get there. What, for God so loved the world, does prophecy have the world in mind? Yes. Isaiah 49, Isaiah 60, Isaiah 61. Oh, the whole goal isn't to leave the Gentiles out there hanging. The goal in prophecy is here's the king, here's the nation he's going to rule. That nation is going to turn and go bring the blessings to the Gentiles. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why did he give his only son? So that he would be who? The king, Messiah. He would answer and fulfill the mandate given to King David. By the way, in the millennial kingdom, King David is resurrected and, he, and, and set back on the throne of Israel. And then Israel, the 12, tri the 12 apostles, sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes. So you've got a hierarchy coming. God, the son, he is the king. He's the only potentate. I love that. The only potentator. You know, he's it, but he's got other things he's got to go do now in the new heaven and, new, and Israel is functioning because he's who? He's also our head. See? So we got, he's got other activity, and, but he's what? He's Israel's king, Messiah. What are they doing in John 3? They're rejecting their Messiah. Then he says in verse 16, that whosoever believeth... Now watch, in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, come over to 1 Corinthians 15. Because the believing in him, and then what happens is, is everybody starts getting into semantics, but I want to show you something that the context here, look, look at 1 Corinthians 15, because that's the part where they say, see, this is the gospel because you got to believe in him. Well, there's more going on in John 3.16. By the way, there's no blood in John 3.16. There's no death. There's no burial. There's no resurrection. How do I know that? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. Okay? So they hear the gospel. They believe the gospel. They're what? They're saved. 
Then he says, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. That's not a questioning of their salvation. Because when you got saved, what did the Father seal you with? Who did the Father seal you? The Spirit. You're not losing. Okay, this is something. There's a question arising in the minds of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, and it has to do with the issue of the resurrection of the dead. And what they're believing and having struggling with is the resurrection part because they've allowed the wisdom of the world to come in and say, you really believe that somebody raised from the dead? What are you, nuts? You're a goofball, you know? And they've fallen for it. And so it's not a questioning of their salvation that they lose it because you can't lose the spirit. You're sealed with it. So there's more going. Verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. None of that is found in John 3.16. But everybody says, see, go back to John 3.16, see, but it's believing in him. Well, what did we demonstrate with John? That lifting up thing, There's now let's back it out a little bit and look at the context of what it is to believe in him in the setting of the Gospel of John. Look at John 3, uh, verse 18. He that believeth on him. Now, wait a minute. Is it in him or on him? John just told you both ways. <laughs> it's both, by the way. You and I, what are we going to believe? We're going to believe in his activity at Calvary. We're going to believe in him and who he said he is, our Savior, our Redeemer. But then we're going to believe on, see, it's both. It's not a if or, either or, it's both. But keep reading verse 18. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Now watch. Because he hath not believed in the cross of Calvary, the preaching of the cross of the only begotten. No, it doesn't say... Believed in what? In, his, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the believing in Him has a context, doesn't it? What is it to believe in Him? It's to believe in His what? Name. See that? Come on over to, to go back to chapter 1. I didn't finish this verse a minute ago. Verse 12. You see, the belief here isn't believing on the, the cross work or in the cross work. The believing here has to do with His name. Look at verse, uh, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Now watch. Even to them that believe on his, what? Name. Come over to chapter 20 of John. Time-wise, we'll just run back here. John 20. John 20 and verse 31. John 20, 31. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, that'd be great if that's where that verse ended, but it doesn't. And that believing ye might have life through his, what? Name. Has nothing to do with death, burial, and resurrection. It has to do with what? What's the question? Who is he? He says, I'm Jehovah. I am He. I am the bread. I am the true light. I am the vine. I'm all of that. I am the Jehovah. And you got to believe that who I say I am is who I am. You got to believe in the name. Remember what the, in Acts, 
the, guy, the council tells Peter, you can go do whatever you want, just don't do it in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter goes, okay, well, that's where the power is. So he looks at that guy outside, the, the, the lame guy outside the temple and says, I don't have money in, or anything to give you, but I do have it. And in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, right, and, walk, and he's instantly healed head to toe, complete, done. You see, it, there's a name issue here. In John, the issue is who is the man? Who is this man? Who are you? Come back to chapter five of John, John chapter five. Now again, I have there, I, there's not a bone in my body that despises John three sixteen, but let's leave it where it is, and in the context of it, John five verse thirty nine. Search ye, search the scriptures. Well, what scriptures would he tell them to search? It wouldn't be Paul. That hasn't been written yet or revealed yet. It's the Old Testament. For in them ye think that ye, uh, ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of who? Me. Believe in who he is. Come over to Matthew 16. Just think about this. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 15. But he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, i.e. Messiah the son of the living God. Isn't that interesting? The Lord doesn't say, hey, who believes that I'm going to go die for their sins and give them eternal life and justification? He says, who, who am I? Who does, the, who does the, 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 the populace out there say? But then who do you guys say? By the way, verse 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. But I say also, the Father, yeah, Pete, you got the right answer. That's because the Father revealed it to you. By the way, how did the Father reveal it to Peter? John the Baptist and the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what did old Pete see? They saw the dove descending and they see all that. Come over down to verse 20. Now think about this verse. Who, who am I, guys? You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Verse 20, then charged he his disciples, that they should tell everybody in the world that he was Jesus the Christ. Come on, wake up. It's almost over. Coffee is real close. No, what do they say? Don't tell anybody. Now, wait a minute. What kind of a outreach message is that? Paul says our ambassadorship, we have a word of reconciliation to who? To the whole world. We're out there telling everybody. What? what? Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. What's going on here? Not so. Come on, uh, you're in Matthew. Look at Matthew 14. Again, over and over and over again. Matthew 14, verse 33. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of Man. Isn't that interesting? I'm sorry, Son of God. Look at that. Over and over and again, who are you? You know who you are? Come over to Acts 8. You know who you are? This thing in Acts 8 is just blows your mind. It blew mine. So I'm mindless, I guess. Acts 8. Acts 8. 
who over and over again, you go through, and we don't have time, time the, the hour's up, but you're going to give me two minutes, okay? Or five. I, I let you guys out early last Sunday morning, second hour, by the way, all right? It was only 30, just under 38 minutes, so, okay? <laughs> don't tell me I never, you got Acts 8? And in Acts 8, Philip and the, in, the, in the Ethiopian go, or get, to dis, get to talking, verse 31, okay? And he said, how can I? Uh, so Philip, go, uh, verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go near, join thyself to his, his chariot. Philip gets up in there. He's reading Isaiah 53. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Verse 31, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip and that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this, which is Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shear, so opened he not his mouth. And the eunuch, uh, in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? of himself or of some other man. Then Philip, now watch, opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Okay? And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now watch verse 37. And Philip said, If thou believe with all thine heart, Thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Christ died for my sins and was buried and rose again the third day. What does that man believe? This is Acts 8. Philip in the buggy. And what does that man believe? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Nothing about... Now, this is Acts 8. Israel has been declared heathen. The fall has happened. Here's a, Philip, nothing about Paul's my gospel. So when you come back, John 3.16, but chapter 1 Corinthians 1, when we come into this verse 17 and 18, I don't want to leave it without letting you know, John 3.16 is, and by the way, you can do this with a lot of verses that the mainline Christianity uses. You have to keep it in its place. Don't allow the wisdom of words to make it designed to come in and to, and to draw it into you and I today. Rather, we need, to, we, we need to appreciate what the Lord is doing and saying in John 3, in the Gospels. But what are we going to do with it? We're going to leave it there. We're not going to drag Paul and put it is dishonest with Scripture to take Pauline truth and dump it back into Okay, that's why Paul never says it is fulfilled. He says what? As it is written. He never says we're fulfilling prophetic scripture. So don't do that, okay? Because what's happening at Corinth is the wisdom of words is there because of the, they've left the wisdom of God, which will start in verse 19, and they've moved into the wisdom of man, the wisdom of this world, okay? So John 3.16, wonderful verse. Beautiful verse, very powerful in Israel's program. But don't, it's not the gospel for you and I today. Our gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 3, Romans Road, if you will, Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5, and so forth. Okay?
All right? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word, for the folks' patience and their interest in learning and looking into these matters. And we'll give you the honor and the praise and the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.